Hey everyone, welcome back to the Salt of the Streets. Colin again, flying solo this week. Dawn is still out for reasons that will be discussed on the show this Saturday. Um, so look forward to that. Make sure to tune in for the live stream happening on Saturday. But I was gone this weekend. Dawn was busy and I was out on a hunting trip with my brother. I had originally planned on doing a kind of a, a show via the hotel room that we had. Uh, just south of where we were hunting. But uh, due to some uh, sleep deprivation issues and uh, some utter exhaustion, I think uh, he and I were up for about 40-some hours straight before we finally uh, had a chance to get some sleep. So uh, needless to say, that uh, that didn't work out. So I decided to wait until I came back, and I, I wrote down a little story about my adventures up north, and uh, that's what you're going to hear today. But before we get rolling into that, just a reminder to head over to saltofthestreets.com to check out all of the content we post there. Monday afternoon, after we get off work, the podcast goes up on your podcast feeds wherever you find your podcast. Um, Monday and Tuesday, we have videos that drop on our Salt of the Streets YouTube channel. Monday's the pre-show. Tuesday's the full video episode of the podcast. And on Thursdays, we drop our audio blog posts and the written blog posts on saltofthestreets.com. The live show, as always, can be seen uh, via Facebook on Saturday or whenever we do record. We try to stay active on the social medias to let people know that that's happening. And that is at Salt of the Streets on both Instagram and Facebook. I am personally at Big Bird Offie on both Twitter and Instagram. Donovan is at Alpaca underscore Donovan on Instagram and at Salt of the Street on Twitter. All that being said, I think I checked all the boxes there. Uh, I worked really hard on this. I really hope you enjoy it. And maybe, just maybe, you might be able to learn something. So enjoy. We'll see you on the other side. How many times in your life have you found yourself kneeling in chest-high 40-degree water in the middle of a flooded cornfield? Unless you're a hunter, I'd venture a guess that you never really have. However, it is something that I think you might want to learn about. So today, I'm going to be doing my best to relay a little of my own experience for my own time in a cornfield, all in hopes of bringing you some knowledge and maybe a little perspective on hunting, and in this case, duck and goose hunting in particular. Now, before you tell yourself, wait, 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 I don't want to listen to some podcast about hunting and you skip on to the next episode, please understand that this isn't just going to be some hunting podcast. This is going to be a story about how I came to be involved in hunting, why I got involved, and why it's going to be a major part of my life until the end. About 20 minutes from the Canadian border in northwest Washington, there's a little plot of publicly owned land right off of the I-5 freeway. It's a relatively flat piece of clay-rich dirt that is planted with various crops like corn and potatoes every year. And once a year, the majority of the vegetables are harvested, but they leave about 8 to 12 inches of their stalks left standing, with all but a few small swaths of corn left to dry out and be grazed upon by passing flocks of ducks, gaggles of geese, and wedges of swan. Once the fall and winter rains come, the fields flood in great measure, leaving its surface pot-marked by ponds that measure between 6 inches and 3 feet in depth, making it an ideal pit stop for migrating birds on their annual travels south as they run from the harsh incoming northern winter. This past weekend, I found myself in that field, shotgun in hand and dress head-to-toe in camouflage. 
I was surrounded by thick reeds and cattails which stood over six feet high, and I stared out at a fog-blanketed landscape. My eyes slowly and continuously scanned the horizon for small black dots passing across the skyline. My ears inexplicably became fine-tuned to catch the direction and distance of waterfowl, as they either passed nearby, or if I was really lucky, directly within 30 yards of my makeshift blind in the reeds and cattails. The ambient air temperature was a little over 45 degrees, and the water a few degrees cooler than that. I was kneeling down in the water to hide myself away from the view of any birds that might happen by, when I was struck with the strange absurdity of what I was doing. My brother and I had left our little corner of Kitsap County around midnight. After, of course, we had worked a full day at our respective jobs, we loaded up his truck with all of our gear and started our overnight trek to the northern edge of the state. Both of our minds locked on one goal, ducks and geese. And hopefully, this being of course the closing weekend of the hunting season, a full legal limit's worth. While driving through the night, we shared our nocturnal daydreams of the decadent dishes we'd planned on cooking for our families. We shared a load of different cooking techniques and tips and tricks that we'd be utilizing to cook those meals. It's kind of a long drive with no real visual stimulation to be had, save for the inevitable trickle of headlights and brake lights of late night or maybe I should say early morning traffic endlessly flowing across Interstate 5. So conversations shifted from hunting and cooking to politics, family, music, dream vacations, and just about everything else under the sun. Conversations like the ones my brother and I had on our trip north are an aspect of hunting and fishing that seems to be brushed over in most standard media portrayals, whether it's a TV show, radio program, podcast, or magazine article. I wouldn't think for a second to hold anyone at fault for skipping over the interactions people have traveling to, from, and during these hunting and fishing journeys. It's a highly personal and subsequently private occurrence that is only really substantive to the individuals involved at the time. In other words, it isn't necessarily an entertaining occurrence. It can be, but as a general rule, when people set out on adventures together, if the journey to, from, and during involves an individual or group struggle towards a common goal or destination, whether physical or mentally substantial, there's a bonding phenomenon that takes place. Oftentimes, it's an experience that must be lived to even begin to grasp the depths of its true effects. It's impossible to replicate in any normal fashion. It's nearly inexplicable and impossible to teach. I see it the same as the concept of the proverbial fishing story or fishing tales people tell as they recount the size of a fish that they caught during their trip. They explain to everyone that the fish they caught was this big while spreading their hands out impossibly wide. It's essentially the same situation here except for the fact that instead of it being a, a bull moose, literally the size of that truck right there, we're speaking about people's emotional connections. Now, I don't mean to be getting all sappy or emotional here. I'm simply trying to explain a psychological phenomenon that I feel seems to occur during trips like these that can make people essentially addicted. Some, including myself, would say that it's something genetically, say, primal that we've gotten so far detached from our distant upbringing as a species, from our balanced relationship with our landscape and our natural surroundings, that one would have to experience it for themselves to even begin to grasp its totality. It's that feeling 
or more precisely, the pursuit of understanding that feeling that led my brother and I to journey through the night to the edge of the country's northern border. It was just past 4 a.m. when we had finally reached our cold and muddy destination. It was the second to last day of the hunting season, and we were here with one things on our minds. We were going to be bringing home meat. Meat that was more natural and organic than anything you'll find at your local Whole Foods. It would be meat that we had worked hard for, something we had taken for ourselves and our families. You'd think that after working all day, in physically demanding jobs, I might add, that we'd both be exhausted, but you'd be wrong there. As soon as we began spotting barely visible landmarks in the early morning darkness, we knew we were getting close, and we became extremely, strangely energized. We couldn't have taken a nap even if we wanted to. We both felt like we'd had a full night's sleep, because we'd made it. The pothole-ridden parking lot was empty when we pulled in, which meant that we would have our pick of the hunting spots. So we both finished our coffees and began the lengthy process of layering up and preparing our gear for the long, cold hours between us and legal shooting time. Now, contrary to many people's beliefs, there are a lot of rules when it comes to hunting, and I mean a lot. Firearm safety and practices, species identification, location restriction, harvesting limitations, and about a thousand and one other federal and state laws, which dictate how you are required to go about your hunts. Every state is different, and these laws can change every single year, which requires a constant study of rules and regulations during the off-season. Combine that with the fact that hunting is hard, and I mean, it is hard. It can take years, decades, to develop the skills and knowledge to even think about calling yourself a proficient hunter. Don't get me wrong, like anything, there are people out there that seem to have a genetic knack for it. But generally speaking, much like the endless pursuit of spiritual enlightenment, it's a lifelong pursuit that most will never feel they've truly gained a mastery of. It is that pursuit that drove my brother and I out of his truck and into the cold, waterlogged darkness of that cornfield. Once we found our spot for the day, which was an old, extremely worn-down duck blind, seemingly thrown together with randomly-sized nails and scraps of plywood, we did our best to conceal its boxy, out-of-the-place look with some camouflaging we had brought up, and began to lay out a pattern of duck decoys. Decoys that would be patterned like the various migratory bird species that are common in that area. It's a lengthy and energy-heavy endeavor, which would ultimately, with any luck, catch the eye of some passing waterfowl looking for a quick stop on their way south. Then came the waiting game. Apparently, a lot of people take advantage of this time to nap for an hour or two, since there is literally nothing to do but chit-chat for two to three hours, depending on what time of the year it is. Seeing as we were way too amped up to even begin to think about sleeping, we chose chit-chat and continue our conversations about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, though this time our voices were ratcheted down to a quiet whisper. Occasionally, we'd catch the distant light of a headlamp flickering into existence as another hunting group would make its way through the thin tree buffer between the parking lot and into our temporary home away from home in the cornfield. We'd watch them as they'd move slowly across the field until they found a spot of their own liking. Once they got settled in, we'd watch as their lights would go dark and they'd join us in our nearly silent waiting game. 
After an hour or so had gone by, my brother's phone buzzed from somewhere buried deep underneath his numerous layers of warm, protective clothing. He stood up from our spot and directed me to watch the field entrance. I'd completely forgot that some of his friends from his previous life in the Army Reserve were going to be joining us. Then, out of the distant trees came a light that seemed to reach all the way across the large field. It was his friends. They'd arrived from their own journey north to partake in the same struggle we were. Our spot being just big enough for the two of us, they were left on their own, but soon found what they thought was a good spot for themselves, and within no time, they too went dark and silent. As the sun began to slowly rise above the horizon, we both began to frantically watch the time, counting down the minutes, then the seconds, until it would be legal to begin the day's hunt. Now, I'm not sure of the exact specifics of how the state decided when it's deemed legal to shoot, though they do make it pretty easy by spelling it out in black and white in the yearly regulations book, which is also available online. And it's also categorized by date, which makes things very, very simple. I believe it's a time deemed light enough to be able to reliably recognize what species of waterfowl is flying visually with the naked eye. After all, isn't one of the main gun safety rules to be able to know exactly what you're going to shoot before you shoot it? There are a great deal of species that migrate through the area we were in, and we had licenses for just about all of them. We were ready, and as the clock on our phones clicked over into legal shooting time, our hunt truly began. I would love to say that the sky was full of waterfowl once it became legal shooting time, and that we'd each bagged our daily limit within a couple hours, but this was closing weekend of duck and goose season, and suffice it to say, that was not the case. I was able to spot the first flyer that came into our range, and being as this was my second hunt of my life, I held back and told my brother to take the first shot. He did. And as he would say for the rest of the weekend, to summarize our first day, one shot, one bird. And the rest of the morning was entirely uneventful. That single bird, first thing in the morning, was our one and only bit of real excitement that morning. After about 11.30, we hadn't seen a bird for about two hours, so we decided to call it until the evening when there would be a greater chance to catch some as they came in for a closer look for a good spot to feed and tuck themselves away for the night. We met up with my brother's friends back at the parking lot. We told stories of missed opportunities and shots that would have been. All of us had had a very long morning, and even longer nights, so we all decided to head into town and grab a much-deserved hot meal. After our meal, we stopped by the hotel my brother's friend had so kindly gotten us for our hunting party. We regrouped, made some last-minute plans before heading back out to the cornfield to catch the evening hunt. And this is when I discovered the spot I prefaced earlier on this podcast. It was almost nearly the opposite side of the cornfield that we had originally been at, but we'd seen a lot of activity that direction that morning, so my brother put the onus on me. He said, well, this is your hunt, man. You pick the spot. Again, it was only my second time hunting ever, so I racked my brain searching for whatever I thought would be a good spot for a blind, and luckily, I made a good call. It was a heavily flooded area, two to three feet deep in some spots, socked in heavily with thick reeds and tall cattails. We each tucked ourselves away back into the thick area and pushed out a small open circle just big enough that we'd be able to kneel down to conceal our presence to any incoming flyers. 
With our natural blinds in place, the stage was set and the actors were ready. All that was left to do was wait for the real stars to flap in and steal the show. If you haven't yet picked up on it, there's a lot of waiting to be done while duck hunting. A lot of time spent scanning the sky, literally watching the world go by, just hoping to catch a glimpse of an incoming flock or even a lone flyer. Your ears become transformed into finely tuned antennas, listening through the rustling of the wind against the reeds and the songs of the songbirds as you try to pick up on any sign of ducks quacking or goose honking. Now maybe it's just me, though I'd venture a guess I'm not alone in this thought, but I find as I grow a little older, I've begun to relish in moments of quiet solitude, especially while I'm away from the distractions of the everyday world. It's therapeutic in a way that's hard to put your finger on. I mean, there I was, kneeling in nearly freezing cold water up to my chest. I mean, yeah, I had proper protection against the elements, for the most part, but I was still cold. My joints ached from staying nearly motionless on my knee for an hour at a time. But there was something raw, dare I say primal, about the whole thing. I was all at once miserable, but content, in awe of the duality of my surroundings, I never thought I could think of a muddy, flooded, half-rotten cornfield as a place of inspiration, but I suppose that's the nature of being in it. Once you strip away all the human societal elements around you, and you focus on the truly here and now, all that's left is the strange beauty that even a muddy field near the Canadian border can bring. The rest of our evening in the cornfield passed uneventfully. The evening legal shooting time approached, and my brother and I packed up and headed back towards the small comfort of his truck. And so my first day of my last hunt came to a close. That is, until we got back to the parking lot, where I met my very first game warden, and my day got a great deal more interesting. I am notoriously bad when it comes to remembering names, so unfortunately I do not remember his name though I'll never forget our interaction on that fateful day, especially considering I walked away with a $150 ticket. It's a little insider baseball, so I'll sum it up by just saying that I had made an incredibly stupid accidental mistake when preparing my shotgun for the hunt. Remember what I said earlier about hunting having a lot of rules? Well, in all my preparation, I had forgotten to plug my gun's magazine tube and just like that, boom, $150 ticket. I will give it to the officer. I have never walked away from an interaction with a law enforcement officer, one in which I walked away with an infraction anyways, feeling as content as I did with him. He told me that within a few minutes of meeting my brother and I, he knew that we weren't quote-unquote bad guys, and was about as courteous as he possibly could have been. After the infraction was taken care of, he engaged us in some general conversation. He asked us what we did for work, where we came from, and before you know it, 45 minutes had gone by. We had had some laughs at each other's stories, he'd given us some tips and tricks for hunting in the area, and once he learned that I had been in the Coast Guard and my brother had done some time in the Army Reserve, our conversations felt just like hanging out and shooting the shit with someone we'd known for a long time. We left that night, one bird in the truck and a ticket in my pocket, both with smiles on our tired faces, and headed for our hotel to get some well-earned rest. It was a quarter to five when my alarm woke me up the following day. 
Still feeling the effects of the sleep deprivation carried over from the past day, my brother, his friends, and I pulled ourselves out of the beds, couches, and makeshift sleeping spots on the floor and began to prepare ourselves for closing day of this year's hunting season. Thankfully, the hotel was only about 10 minutes away from our beloved cornfield, so before the sleep was completely rubbed from our eyes, we'd arrived. But this time, we were not the first to arrive. Met by two other vehicles in the parking lot, we knew that the public blind would be taken, though that didn't bother us, because we'd already decided to return to our makeshift spot in the flooded reeds and cactails, so we grabbed our gear, loaded up, and headed out to seek our quarry. I will say that there is something strangely peaceful about that spot, especially that early in the morning. It's still as dark as it was at midnight, but once we got there and we got settled, we switched off our headlamps and slowly sank to our knees in the chilly chest-high water and waited out the darkness. The best part about that morning was being there at the right time, when all the little birds perched in their trees began to wake up and filled the morning air with their songs. Off in the distance, you could see the light from the distant sun, just starting to crawl its way up the horizon. I heard the call of a distant rooster belting out his morning reveille. The ducks that had landed during the night started their quacking sessions, almost as if they were trying to rouse the rest of their flock. Some of the earliest risers began flapping their wings and splashing into the water all around us, and soon were airborne. Picking up their migration, they started untold days, weeks, or months ago. As frustrating as it can be for a hunter to hear his quarry leaving the area before legal shooting time, it is a wonder to behold. Sometimes it's a single bonded couple, but sometimes it's a flock of hundreds, which, by the way, can sound like a jet engine as they take off. But regardless of the number, it's a great feeling to be surrounded by animals in their natural habitat doing what they naturally do as if you weren't even there. Once again, as the time for legal shooting approached, my brother and I were glued to our phones, counting down the seconds before we could begin our last day's hunt. But on that day, as soon as I was able to stow my phone away, we were able to get some shots into the air as some of the late risers began their migration journey. After about the first hour and a half, the rush of waterfowl had subsided, so it was time to switch tactics. We switched over to trying to call in some of the stray flyers that were a little late to the party as they flew by, but we didn't really get anywhere there either. The weather that day was much better for us hunters. A thick blanket of fog hung just low enough to bring in some birds at a lower elevation. The wind was just a bit stronger today, which gave us a little better chance of the ducks coming in for a landing to check out our decoys. That being said, it wasn't a particularly productive day of hunting. We did have a chance to take a goose on, but in the end, we failed to do so. After the morning's excitement, the day became more about the landscape. The sun had fully risen and was slowly eating away at our blanket of fog. We'd catch the distant honk from passing gaggles of geese, but we knew that we'd never be able to veer them off course and bring them our way. A stray duck or two would occasionally pass by but they'd be way too high and way too determined to get where they were going to even think about responding to our calls. And as the sun continued to rise and begin to break through the low-lying clouds and burn off the remaining fog, we knew that this meant not only the end of our hunting day, but it also spelled the end to our hunting season. When all is said and done, my brother and I walked away with only two duck, both brought down by my veteran hunter brother. 
He was kind enough, though, to leave me with one of them to take home, especially because he knows how much I enjoy the taste of them. But just like that, we loaded our gear back into his truck, said our goodbyes to his friends, and made our way back home. Okay, well, that's what I did last weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a whole lot of fun making it. I, I tried to get it out on Monday, but I just couldn't make things come together by then. So I hope you guys enjoyed. Once again, my name's Colin. My podcast better half is Donovan. And together, we are Salt of the Streets, out here doing our thing, bridging the gap between people and information. We'll catch you guys next time.